Well, welcome all of you that are here today. Um, I'm very glad that you're here, and I really, really pray that you get some nuggets today that will be helpful no matter the age of your children, right? Had a lot of people asking, is it appropriate for my age child? Are they too old or too young? The truth is a lot, or hopefully a lot of what I'm going to share with you in the next couple weeks is stuff that you'll understand about yourself even, as well as your children for years and years to come. So that's kind of the hope anyway if I do my job right. All right? I have to ask very quickly, how many of you came to my very, the only presentation before uh, COVID shut everything down? I did the one presentation in March, um, I think it was the 12th, actually. How many of you were, maybe I should say, how many of you were not there? Okay, good. (laughs) I'm actually really glad. So for those of you that were there, I really pray that I say some new things. I tried to add in and change things up just a little bit. But in truth, I couldn't keep doing the other couple of weeks without having this basic understanding. So it is going to be some of the same. So I'm going to apologize to you. I was thinking this morning, normally you want people to like remember your presentation. And this morning I was like, God, if they could just forget what they heard in March and hear it all over fresh and new, you know what I mean? Then, uh, Then at least they won't feel like they're bored or something. So anyway, I'm really praying that if you were there, you get something new today. Um, but then of course the next couple of weeks will be all new. So, all right. So my name is Lori Van Harmelin. Um, and I just, I guess everybody does this. I will see if I can introduce you to my family. I'm doing the clicker. They said do the clicker. Maybe I can hold it this way. Ah, there we go. Okay, so this is just one. I have two family pictures, but this is the way I still like to think of my kids. Um, very, very young. They're not. Yeah, those of you that know my kids know that this is not them. Um, so, but we had our two boys, which is on the left there is Jacob, on the right is Daniel. Um, we had our two boys. They were one and three years old, and then we went through a season where we took in my three nieces into emergency foster care. So imagine, you know, one in three and going from two kids to five kids, two of which were 12 years old, and then uh, uh, old was 65 in the middle of all that. So we did that for about a year, and that was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot about God and his provisions in my life. Yes, yes. And then eventually we adopted Amber, so the, the older one in the middle is Amber, and then we had our baby, Abby, who is now 15. So she's no longer the cute little one that she is there. She still is in my heart. But So that was them then, them at that time. And a lot of the stuff I'll be talking about kind of comes from that age, sort of, brain development. Again, it all carries over. But this is our family. Gosh, this is even five years old, honestly. I wish we need to get another one. But So my husband in the middle, Mark, we've been married for 23 years in about a month. So that has been a long 23 years and the fastest 23 years I think I could have experienced at the same time. So Mark and I, and then to his left, Mark's left is Jacob, who is now a sophomore. No, he's a junior in college. Holy cow. So he's in college, um, junior year. And to his left is now Abby. So she's 15 now. So like I said, this is still about five years old. We need to update our our family picture there. Um, And then to my what is that? Right. That's actually my son-in-law, Phil. So Amber is now married. So there's Amber again, uh, married Phil. And then on the end over there is Daniel. So they are absolutely my pride and joy, just like your children are for all of you. Um, and they honestly have taught me 
far more than my education, <laughs> far more than, you know, a lot of things in life, they've been my teacher. And I tell you, if I were going to say anything, oh, yeah, that's, we'll get back to that in a minute. <laughs> but I tell you, if I have one nugget that I would love to just share with you that I wish if I could ever go back is to be a student of my child, right? Be a student of my child, not I'm going to tell you how to be or who you are. I'm going to be a student of who God created you to be so that I can then help raise you the way that he wants to design you and and blossom you and how he's gifted you and all of that. So being a student of your child will always uh, be a, a good thing. So, yes, I did... I started looking at funny little memes a little bit because my life has been exceptionally crazy with all of those kids. And I found this and I thought, oh, yeah, that's it. We know this comment a lot. But, you know, that moment when you realize that this is your circus and those are your monkeys. And I'm just going to say I throw my husband into that as well. Bless his heart. He also is um, adds to the crazy a lot of times in our home. So um, as far as my uh, bringing me right to this place, I'll just give you a, hopefully just like a minute or maybe two minute little clip, if you will. Um, I have a master's degree in counseling and I've uh, been doing that for a lot of years, but about 15 years ago, I, every, every move in my professional life, like God just designed it and I kind of followed along and wondered where we were going, but, but he's just been so good. But about 15 years ago, he brought me into a place. Um, I worked with kids who had been sexually abused um, almost solely. And um, I tell you, the learning that I did, the understanding I gained about the brain and about uh, how the brain is developed and how it experiences things and how it helps uh, all of us, but kids included, to know how to experience life was just incredible to me. And I've been soaking that stuff up for probably 15 years or more, actually more, probably about 17 years now. Um, and so that is what I am going to be hoping to bring to you today as a lot of, um, well, in the next couple of weeks, but a lot of stuff about brain development and understanding. So, um, but that's kind of where I, I started this part of my career was about 17 years ago. And I love it. I get excited about it. I think it's amazing. The more that I learn about the brain, the more I think God is just incredible. <laughs> um, it just has been amazing to, to see how he has designed us. So um, I think I also just kind of sort of quickly wanted to ask, like, I want to see how many kids are in what age ranges, age ranges. So kind of the the flow of brain development, we kind of have this first wave that's like the zero to six-ish, and I'll explain that later. But so for now, if you have a child in a zero to six age range, but oh, you have okay. We got a lot of them. Okay, lots of those little ones, right? Um, the second kind of developmental wave that we'll kind of look at is seven through around eleven. So if you have one around that age range too, and you could have multiple, obviously. So um, you know, you might okay. And then so that's eleven, and then we have eleven to about seventeen, right? That's kind of a third wave. A couple, okay? Um, and then really there's another wave. We probably won't spend nearly as much time on it in these workshops. Um, kind of the last uh, developmental stage, if you will, that occurs that is still considered child development actually is about 18 to 20. 
while 25 for women, and I know that sounds like, no, we're adults. Some of you are 25, you know, you might be thinking that I'm an adult. We definitely, I mean, you're an adult, but as far as the brain development goes, that last wave that takes us out of the adolescence and into the fully adult brain is 18 to 25, and quite honestly, for men, it's closer to 30, and nobody in here is surprised by that, right? But that's really the truth, is that men, brain development-wise, tend to be closer to 30. So sometimes you have, you know, you're married and you're, you know, you're 28 years old, you and your spouse are, and you might be thinking, why does he still act like he's 15? You know, truthfully, if we are giving the brain the understanding that it really, how it's designed, they're still wrapping up their adolescence, right? And so there are times that they're going to act like an adolescent. You're going to have a 24-year-old daughter who sometimes just does things that you're like, what are you thinking, right? And it's because they're still in that last brain wave of development that's considered child development, right? So just a piece of information about that that I find very interesting, and it really has helped me manage my own kids a little bit differently because I have them in those ages now, so... So the first thing that I'm going to spend um, quite a bit of time on is um, I actually wanted to ask you just for a quick second here, and you're just thinking this. I'm not going to ask anybody to share anything out loud, but I want you just to think for a second. One moment in any of your child-raising years um, with your children, one moment that you can say inside, oh, my gosh, that was absolutely fascinating, right? Like something about a moment with one of your kids. See if you can bring up something in your mind that was just amazing. Like, oh my gosh, that was just fantastic. Like for me, my Jacob was my oldest at the time. Um, 10 months old, never had crawled. And he started walking. (laughs) And he was on these little legs that were like this tall. And I just remember like, Oh my gosh, is that possible? Anybody? Well, I don't want to, I'm not going to ask for sharing right now, but just tap into that sense, right? Everybody got something? Can you feel the exhilaration of that moment, right? It's rewarding, it's cool, it's exciting. And then I want you to think, hold that. And then I want you to think of one of those moments where you were like, like terrified, you know, like, oh my gosh, right? And just get that, remember that sense, that feeling, that emotion of, oh my gosh, right? Maybe it's a morning you ran in, your kid didn't wake up at the time they normally do, and you're thinking for sure that they're not breathing, and you put your hand on their back, and then you wake them up, you know, but there's that terror, that panic moment, right? Um, Another one that is very common, just take that minute and think about a moment when you were just, you were just mad, (laughs) you know? I've told you... A thousand times, you know better. I know you know better, right? But you're just, oh, just you just want to do something. You know you can't. I will. I'm going to be very honest in these presentations. Just so you know, there was some points in one of my children's lives. He cried nonstop. He cried nonstop. They never actually called him. Uh, oh, what's the word? Colic. They never called him colic. But I, he just cried 24 seven. And there were times where, I mean, I wanted to take that baby, and I literally wanted to throw him against the wall. I never did. But I'm telling you, that internal, oh, if I could just do anything, because this is driving me insane, right? And then, of course, you have the joy, right? Those moments where, like, the belly laugh giggle, <laughs> that gets you laughing so hard, that all you, you just sit there and you just laugh. And maybe you're even spewing food or something, but it's just so funny because they're so adorable and that laugh that gets going that belly laugh that's just nobody can do it like a baby right 
And I, I ask you to tap into those emotions for a minute because I want to really start helping you understand. Even as we start looking at all this development stuff, here's, here's an easy trap to fall into. I'm going to talk about something, and you're going to think to yourself, I didn't do that very well. Or I, I, did I screw up? I actually asked my dad that when Jake was six months old. I said, did I screw him up? <laughs> and I meant it. Like I was in tears at the moment, right? When you have that moment, I want you to really dig down deep and, and remind yourself God has given you everything you need, every emotion to manage every situation. He's given that to you, and you, I'm just going to say this right at the top of the presentation, you're a good mom or a good aunt or a good grandma or whoever you are caring for, you are a good one right? And you have to hold that, and you have to hold that with every emotion that I just described that you experience with those kids, because otherwise you'll be tempted to think, I goofed up, or I, I messed them up, right? You didn't mess up, but you can't mess up God's creations, right? They are beautiful in his sight, and he has given you everything you need to parent them, but we're going to have those moments along the way. And so I'm going to really, I probably will say that more than one time, because I know myself thought many, many times, I goofed this up. I, my kid is, I messed him up, right? I don't have the power to do that over the power of God. And I just want to encourage you to hold on to that. All right. Um, I'm going to jump down because I feel like I'm, I'm sharing a lot. Um, I want to jump down. I have to read you this quote, but then I'm going to get into the developmental stages. I love this quote. This is kind of how I wanted to wrap up that that sense of being a good mom anyway. This quote I came across, I actually just came across this one the other day, and I, I love it. You may have heard it before. It says, the day, the day that you became a mother is the day that you started watching your heart walk outside your body, <laughs> right? Like, we love these kids. We want to do everything we can to help them grow and be all that God wants them to be, right? I resonated with that, and I thought, yes, that's absolutely the truth, which is why I want so much to try to give you some of this information in the next several days, or the next several weeks. Okay, um, so the first thing I'm actually going to really be talking, and this doesn't show up, so there are... Um, I think, Jenna, you handed those out, right? It's the, actually the front page. This is where I'm going to spend a little more of my, to most of my time today. Um, it'll, and we're not going to go through the whole thing because this is a life stages. So basically what you're looking at, those eight stages of development. Some of you, if you took any, like, you know, psychology or sociology back in, you know, like the generalist classic school or something like that, you might have learned about Eric Erickson's eight stages of development. That's what this is. But they are deeply profound in the sense that it really helps us understand the developmental levels that the kids are going through and, and what we want to help them master and, and, and truly to understand. And hopefully I'll be sharing with you at each mastery level, right, if they master it in a way that is uh, helpful and, and positive, I'm hopefully also going to share with you how that will benefit them for a lifetime. So it's not just, you know, at two that this is great, but the fact that at, you know, 42, if they've mastered, let's say, the, the trust level, they really gain a better understanding and have a deeper understanding of how to trust their Heavenly Father as opposed to somebody who really struggled to master trust as an infant 
that can have an impact on a person in their 40s until they've had those moments with God to change that, right? So even though it's very young that they're learning these things, um, the hope, not just the hope, the evidence is that it will have an impact to them much older in life. Okay, so I want to just start in on some of these um, developmental levels. You really can't see that super well. Um, you, you know, your paper would probably be easier there. But that first developmental stage is that trust and mistrust. And, and I'm going to be sharing a little bit in a little bit later about, like, how the brain actually does this. So I'm not going to talk about that part of it quite yet. Um, but I just want to start talking about this basic developmental level of trust and mistrust. And the reality is kids between age zero and five, five to maybe pushing six, they they do not, and you will know this, but they do not have the ability really to process anything. They can't sit and stop and think through why did I say that? Or why did mom say that? Or, you know, how should have I thought about, how should have I felt about that? That, that, that doesn't exist in brain development at that point. When, when, when little ones are born, actually even in utero, there's like the shell of the brain, but it's fairly empty as far as like neurological connections, which we'll just, you'll talk about in a little bit, but it's fairly empty. So they don't have this ability to process anything, right? So their learning is done by experience. It's done by how, how do I um, experience people? And, and really, most specifically, it's going to be parents, right? Um, or the caretakers that are prominent in their life. How they experience them teaches them how to think about the world. How to, how, is the world safe? Is, um, am I valuable? Do, do I, uh, do I, uh, uh, am I okay enough to have attention, right, given towards me, right? Or to be loved. It's a big one, right? So they experience it. They don't think about it. It's really, really great when parents tell kids how much they love them, but I'm going to tell you that holding them and in a hug and an embrace, making eye contact with them, um, doing something involved with them, maybe helping their little hands put a puzzle piece in, that connection, those things experientially will tell your child that you love them. Not that I don't want you to use the words, of course, but more than the words that you use. Because internally, what's happening in their brains is these little neurological connections. They look like these little noodles. I've seen some videos, which is really amazing, um, on these, these little like noodly pieces. And as they're experiencing something in life, these noodles are working towards each other. And eventually, it ends in like the solid developmental pathway and if it's a positive pathway that's developed, that child learns not just that I am loved, but um, all of the feeling, the thought, the emotion that goes with that gets encapsulated into that neurological pathway. I hope this is making sense, but it's really interesting stuff. I've seen a lot of videos on it. So that's what's happening, as opposed to... Um, let's say a child that is not able to engage in that kind of a person. Maybe, uh, you know, you, uh, there's just a scenario where maybe the parents, uh, maybe there's uh, homes with seven kids or something. And if you have seven kids, that's beautiful and I love that. So I don't say that as a negative, but sometimes it's busier. Sometimes it's harder to do maybe as much of that one-on-one. So sometimes those noodle uh, neurological pathways 
they're a little bit tougher to make those connections. So there's less of them is what I'm trying to say, right? So the more connection, the greater the experience of in, in the belief of I, I am loved, I am cared for, I'm adored, I'm valuable, right? Anybody have any question on that? I mean, is that... Makes sense, sort of, a little bit. <laughs> okay, so the trust-mistrust, I guess I haven't talked about that as much as I wanted to yet. That really is resolved for a child, really, they say, the first six to nine months of life, right? And I know you're thinking, wow, infancy, really? They can't decide that they trust or can't trust? But their life experience tells them that. So when they cry, do you feed them? When they, when they have a tummy ache and you're not sure what it is, are you still holding them? Are you um, embracing them in a way that's comforting, right? So they are learning that when I hurt or when something is happening that I need attended to, okay, it happens for me. That develops that trust for them. And like I said earlier, infants who experience that level of trust, years later tend to know how to trust in a relationship. They know how to have a safe, trusting relationship. Kids who don't get that as much really struggle to have those trusting relationships. And I want to say our brains are neuroplastic, so those development things can happen later, and I'll talk about that later. But just as far as this infancy now, I want you to understand that that's what's going on. Um, the opposite, of course, is mistrust, right? So when, um, when they don't have their needs met, they don't get that same sense of knowing that I'm going to be taken care of. There's a missionary, some of you may have heard this before, that went to, I believe it was Romania. This was many years ago. They would never allow this anymore, I don't think. But he had gone to Romania into an orphanage, and he was told that he was going into a room of about 100 babies. This was during a time when families... Um, they were highly encouraged to have lots of babies to help work land and, and just for things like that, but then the parents couldn't afford them, and so they were ending up in the orphanages and things. And he walked into this baby room, with a, and he was expecting, like, a lot of crying. <laughs> and he walked in, and it was dead silent. And he could see little ones kind of moving in cribs. I mean, they were, they were not like it was a room full of sleeping babies, um, but nobody was making a peep. And he asked the the woman there that was, you know, giving him this little tour, why is it so quiet? Why aren't they crying or anything? And she said, oh, they do for the first two or three days. And then when nobody responds, nobody holds them or nobody cuddles or comforts them, they stop. And what that says, it's very sad, it's horribly sad, but what that really tells us from a brain development stage, their brains have already learned in those first two to three days, four days, not to cry out. We, we call that, you know, now we call that failure to thrive. Those kids that, that really don't fight, if you will, for life, for attention, um, they tend to give up um, because they've already been learning and it's already been wiring into their brains that nobody's coming, right? So that's that trust and mistrust stage. We want kids, obviously, to master that level by experience that their needs are going to be met, okay? Um, second stage is the... Um, Get on there. Oh, I didn't talk about the bonding really quick. That also is in the trust-mistrust. Bonding, I kind of addressed this earlier, so I'm not going to say too much right now, but bonding is really looking at that, emo that connection, 
making eye contact. When babies, when, when babies are feeding, um, whether it's bottle or breastfeeding, making that eye contact, smiling at them, um, cooing at them, that is speaking development. That is speaking brain uh, connections that say you are loved. It's being wired into their brains, right? So the more that, you know, now, I mean, we're mothers and we've got a thousand things to do. And I, you know, I've been there, done that too. Um, But when you have those opportunities to connect, just even for you know, five minutes of reading that story that they asked you for the hundredth time or whatever, that speaks brain wiring, right? And connection and bonding. So that's all encapsulated into that trust and mistrust. All right. Um, The second one that I want to go down. Oh, I wanted to read you this definition a minute. This is the definition of neuroplasticity. I love this for the brain, right? Because you remember I already said here we've only covered stage one and some of you are thinking, oh, maybe I didn't do that very well. So I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to keep hitting that and say, no, you don't. You're not allowed to think that way, right? Brains are neuroplastic. Here's a definition, which is amazing. I love this. It says, the brain's plasticity is the ability of the brain to modify its connections or rewire itself. So God gave us these brains that knew we were going to be in this imperfect world, right? But we have this ability, or, you know, really through his design, our brains have the ability to rewire and make new neurological connections in places and in ways that um, maybe we're not as healthy at first. So um, it goes on to say, without this ability, any brain, well, not just the human brain, so a brain would be unable it would be unable to develop uh, infancy through adulthood or to recover from a brain injury. So basically it's saying because our brains are neuroplastic, because there is new rewiring, and we've learned now a lot of the work that I um, have done in more probably five to ten years has been a lot of trauma-type work, and we have these, uh, oh, I would love to share, I I just don't have time to share all of that, but, but experiences I've been through with people that we help them go back to a moment that was very very difficult or traumatic for them, emotionally or devastating. And we there's processes we can go through to help them rewire that, to update that neurological connection so that they don't have to experience it the same way they once did, which maybe was with a lot of pain or suffering or sadness or you know, fear, those kinds of things, right? Um, so that's what neuroplasticity is. So again, if you don't feel like your child went through a certain stage the way that you maybe wish they would have, it's okay. It really is. I just want you to understand what's happening, but then we can talk more about the rewiring later, okay? Um, yep, okay. The other thing I wanted to explain to you on this, I think this is fascinating. I hope you guys get as fascinated as I do about this. I'm sorry if... I'm overly excited, but I love this stuff. So there's this guy. Um, I rewatched it last night, actually. I thought about bringing it to show, but it was like an eight-minute video, and I didn't want to take that much time. So hopefully I'll explain it a lot shorter. But there's a guy whose friend is an engineer, and, he, and I did share this. So for those of you, I'm sorry, this is duplicating, but it's, it is amazing to understand this stuff. Um, his friend created a gear... Uh, gadget that he put on a bike. So imagine I'm sitting on a bike, right? So right in the front, if I turn the handlebars this way, typically your your tire goes that way, right? And so we've all learned how to ride a bike somewhere in those young years probably. So we know that when we turn the handlebars this way, bike's going to go that way, obviously the other way, right? So his friend created this little gadget that made it so that when he turned handlebars this way, the tire went that way. So it was reverse, right? They call it a reverse, what did he call it? Reverse gear, I can't really call it. Reverse something. Uh, 
anyway, so so the guy is 30, I uh, watched it last night, what did he say? I think he said he was 36 years old, and he got on this, he was like, I can do that. <laughs> I know how to ride a bike, it's just going to be a little tweak, I can do that, right? He got on that thing, it took him eight months, eight months of trying every day, and all of a sudden, he got on it one day, and he started, and he wobbled a little bit, and all of a sudden, it clicked right in, and he rode it with this reverse gadget, right? And, and what, from a brain development perspective, what happened was his brain was so wired for 30, I think he said he actually learned to ride a bike at five. So for 31 years, he had been riding the bike, his brain knew, this is what I got to do, right? And it took eight months to shift that so that he could now ride this reverse. And all of a sudden, in a moment, it shifted for him, and he got it. And it's almost like go back to those noodles coming together. Come to, he had to work hard at that thing, and all of a sudden it connected, and he got it. And then he just started riding that reverse bike like nothing, like he never, you know, that it didn't take him eight months to figure it out. Then about, I want to say it was a couple months later, he'd gone to Amsterdam. I don't know why, but he was in Amsterdam. Everybody bikes there. But then I have the reverse gadget bike. And he went to get on a bike. He thought nothing of it. I mean, he'd ridden it for 31 years, remember, right? So he went to get on this bike, a regular standard bike, and he couldn't ride it. He tried. and he tried. It took him 20 minutes of getting on, trying to ride, and falling, and trying. And he said people were laughing at him. And he was like... I mean, sort of embarrassed, but more intrigued at what was going on in his brain. And what had happened, if you go back to the brain, the connection that was made there replaced. It updated, right, which is what we know happens when we do this neuroplasticity. So it updated the brain to ride this other type of bike. And it took him 20 minutes to refine that old pathway that had been there. And now he was searching for it, obviously. When we have painful experiences, we're not usually searching to go back to that. Um, But that's what happened in the brain, right? So when we update the brain, it goes back to that moment to handle that situation. Does that make sense? It's very fascinating. So, um, yeah, so let me just move on here. So the second stage um, is the autonomy. Am I on the right one? I feel like I'm missing one. Nope, it is. The autonomy um, autonomy versus shame. So in this stage, this is that I do it stage, you know, and some of you are going to recognize that. It's all about I'm going to do it. I do it. I get dressed. I, you know, this is what I want to eat. It's all about me and what I need, what I want, right? They want to have like this decision making. And granted, there are two or three, I get it. <laughs> but brain development wise, this is where they're trying to start to exert themselves. They realize there's something more to this and I don't want to be told what to do all the time. Now, we're still parents. We still have to do that, and we'll talk about that. But this stage, we want them to pass through this stage with a mastery of believing that I can make decisions. I do have a voice. I can be heard. I should be heard, right? So it's a trick as a parent, right? You know that, where we have to help them understand, yes, there are boundaries and there are consequences, but you also have a choice. I remember for Jacob, when Jake was two, there was one moment, and it was like this light bulb moment. I don't remember what I had told him, maybe to get dressed or something. I don't remember what I had said, but and he was really compliant right up until this point. He was just such a great kid as far as that went, and all of a sudden, he looked at me, and he goes, no. (laughs) And I just remember thinking, what did you just say to me? Like, you can't tell me no. I'm your mother, right? And and it was was this 
light bulb moment in his little head that even though mom had just told me to do something, he had determined I don't have to if I don't want to, right? Now, I really wish I'd understood more about these stages <laughs> because at that point, you know, I kind of took the, yes, you will. I am your mother and yes, you will, right? But going back, if I could go back to some of those moments, what I wish I would have probably done would have been get down on my knee and get kind of eye to eye to him and say, I know you want to have a voice and a choice, and I know you want to make decisions in your life, and that's okay because there are things that you get to decide. But sometimes mommy also has to tell you things that you need to do because as mom, maybe I understand it more, or I, you know, whatever, and so we just walk them through it, right? You know, back then, I'm not sure I would have thought that trying to converse with my two-year-old about something was the best idea. But when I really learned these developmental stages and started to really understand how we want them to go through these stages successfully, there are a lot of things I would have done differently, right? We still have to have that authority. God gave us the authority as parents to have boundaries and consequences and things like that. But there are ways we walk through that that still allow them to feel heard, that still allow them to feel valued. They have a voice. They can make some decisions. Sometimes it might be, you know, um, if they're fighting about clothes, you know, a little girl, that was, I guess, one that I, I don't remember it, but my mom told me for years that I would fight about what we, I was going to wear, you know, laying out three or four outfits, okay? And, and maybe it's church, and so there's certain things you want them to wear or not wear. Maybe you're giving them some options within something that's okay, right? But having them have some sort of ability to communicate what's important to them as well as hearing and listening from you, right? Um, the opposite of that, of course, as you see there, is shame, right? And shame starts to say something's wrong with me, right? So if kids are always told no, you can't, um, you know, there's that sense that they don't have a voice, they shouldn't be heard, those kids won't always fight for themselves. <laughs> you know, I was looking at him during service, and I was thinking from a brain perspective, it's so hard to look at a tiny one that age and think this is what's going on in there, <laughs> right? But the stuff I'm talking about, he's a perfect example that even though you think, why they're so little? That how could all this be going on? This is what's going on in, in the brain, right? It's amazing. I love it. Um, so we don't want them to start feeling like something is wrong with them. We want to give them those opportunities to have their voice. The questions associated with this stage are, is my voice important? Can I be heard? Am I okay? Or is there something wrong with me? All right. Those are the, the questions that we, we want to help them, you know, overcome, obviously, from a positive perspective. Um, the next one, initiative and guilt. Um, is this going at a good pace, or is this my dragon, or going too fast? Like, you feel like everybody's doing, are you doing okay? Okay, yeah. I mean, if, you know, don't be afraid. Like I said, I'm really laid back. I'd rather know if this was working for you or not. So, all right. Um, so the third, third one, initiative versus guilt. Okay, initiative, this is that stage of exploration, right, where they start wandering off. They're wandering away. They might start you know, braving out in a store, and you're like, come back, come back, you know, we got some safety issues here, right? But this is where we want them to feel like they have the ability to explore, to create, right? Sometimes they come up with the most, I don't know if this is the right word, but like nonsensical ideas, you know, like whether it's a game, they're creating these rules that you're just thinking, what, right? You know, 
But the truth is to give them options to follow along with when they're ex- exercising that part of their brain and their mind, that's a good thing. They're, they're getting this sense that I can be creative. I have, um, maybe it's the beginnings of giftings. They're not going to think of it like giftings, but that's the beginning of understanding there's something unique and special about me, right? And so we want them to be able to explore and, you know, to wander off. But obviously, as mom, you're, you're going to have them wander as closely as possible. Your eyes are never going to be off them, right? I did on my Daniel, the redheaded one. Um, we did the whole backpack with the leash on it. And I know I got looks like, you shouldn't leash your child. That child was afraid of nothing. And so I did, I mean, I had to let him wander and, and explore a little bit, but not out of my reach, right? And uh, he actually did get lost one time down at Festival of the Arts. Oh, it was a, there was a terror moment, right? And all of a sudden, I heard his high, high-pitched, out of the crowd. And I just started yelling, Daniel. And of course, we came together again, but that was a terrifying moment, right? But he was a wanderer, and he wasn't usually afraid of anything. And, and so for me, like I said, we used a backpack with the leash thing on it, and I know people hated it, but... Um, it worked for us, and we didn't eventually ever totally lose him. <laughs> we, we always got him back. Um, so we want them to have this exploration, this um, imagination, creativity, right? And like I said, sometimes it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Or the older kid in your home is going to go, Mom, that's stupid. I don't know why he wants to do it that way. But you know what? We say to that older child, you know, it is fun to be creative sometimes, and we're going to let him decide this time or her decide this time. Um, we're going to do maybe by their rules, and next time we'll play by yours or something like that. So sometimes helping those older kids, you know, understand that this is okay, we want to allow this, right, is a really good thing. The opposite is, is that feeling of guilt. You know, guilt really being I'm doing something wrong. There's some, again, kind of going back to the, there's something wrong with me. Um, we, don't want, we obviously do not want them to feel that sense that everything has to be shut down all the time, right? Kids who don't master this level, you know, they get into their adolescent and their older years, you know, the teenage years. They really, a lot of them struggle with school because they don't feel like they have what it takes to learn. That, that whole idea of being able to take on new information and use it and, and figure it out, this is a stage where that really can get challenged um, if they don't master through this one in a, in a positive way. All right. Um, am I capable? Can I do it? Those are some of the questions that are um, asked at this level. Okay. Um, this is the last one I'm going to talk about right now. I'm not going to do the rest of them because those get into older life. But like I said, really between zero and um, this is actually just going to take us through 12. I'm not even going to do the teen right now. Um, but the, um, the eight stages takes you all the way through end of life stages. But the first, I think, four or five are all these younger years. And then they move on from there. So the industry and inferiority, this is the one. This one's a hard one. Um, it's really hard because of peers, <laughs> and everybody is trying to figure out themselves at this stage. And because it's a stage of comparison, it's a stage of starting to recognize there are other kids. This is zero to, I'm sorry, not zero, six to 12. So you think about really your elementary years, right? This is that stage that they become aware that there's other people and maybe start recognizing that somehow I am not like that other person. There's something different about me. And I tell you, it doesn't matter if the difference is a 
a positive or negative in their mind, it's, it's bad because it's a difference, right? This is a stage where we want you to work really hard at talking about things like uniqueness is a gift. It's a blessing that God makes each one of us with different gifts and abilities and talents or thought processes, how the brain works. Some people process more. Other people are very quick-witted, right? It's okay. Both are good. So it's a stage that we really want to be intentional about talking to kids about, yep, you are a little bit different than that little girl or that little boy at school, but that's a good thing because look at what's really great about you and let's celebrate what's really great about them so that it doesn't become this negative comparison or one's better than the other. It really, we want it to be so much more about celebrating uniqueness as a whole, right? Um, So this is, but it's a tough one because kids and, you know, I always hate to say this, but a lot of times kids just can be not nice, right? They can just not be nice sometimes and they will be very quick to point out how somebody's different and when you're different, you're bad most of the time. So that's why we want to be really instilling into them really early that your uniqueness is God-given and it's good and we want to celebrate that, right? So this is a stage two where um, a lack of mastery is another part of this and we want them to think, am I the right? Yeah, I'm in the right one. Um, You know, things like... um, Oh, I think of my daughter uh, used to make me these little uh, jewelry, beaded jewelry things. And, you know, half the time they were, it was like with that little elastic stuff that was super loose and didn't really fit. And, you know, it dangled way down here and things, you know. But she was so proud of it. And she had hand-selected every one of those little beads to go on my bracelet, right? So I wore it, <laughs> you know, and in the boys. And anything that they do that they are excited about, that they make for you or they create for you or they want to tell you, or it's the little boy who comes in with those little flowers for mom, right? We want to celebrate those things. We want to um, recognize them as good, and those are positive and strengths about them, beautiful things about them, so that that is all part of going through this mastery level um, of, of development, age development. All right. Um, and again, it really comes down to that one question of, am I good enough, right? Do I measure up? Do I compare? All right. Um, anybody, I mean, have any, I guess I, I'll be here afterwards. Is there any questions on those? Those are the stages of development that I'm going to go through for now. Yes. The six to, yep. So the beginning, oh, it's not on that paper. I'm sorry. So the trust, mistrust, I, I should have said that. I didn't realize it wasn't on this paper. The trust, mistrust, really, uh, they say zero to make like nine months, right? That's a really young one. Um, the, I, my eyes are so bad. I can't, what's that one? What's the second one say? <laughs> Tell the toddler. Yes, that's like two to three, right? That second one is the two to three. Uh, the initiative. That one um, is more of your three to probably push in six, like that. And then the industry inferiority, is that the one that I'm on, inferiority? That one's the six to 12. That one's a little broader. Yeah. So those go very quick. Um, Those four are life stages development within the first 12 years, and then they start to space out just a little bit. The, the next one is the adolescent. I was, you know, I wasn't thinking I was going to talk a lot about that one today. In fact, time-wise, I think I am going to stop because I know I have to be done in five minutes. Um, but I really, my hope for for the next two weeks now, beyond this week, next week I really want to do 
Um, these are like stages of development and as far as behavior and understanding and, and wiring and all of that. Next week, I actually want to get more into, um, and I hope you're all okay with this, but I just find it fascinating, like brain, what's actually happening in the, the uh, core of the brain and how emotion is care. Sorry is carried, how it's managed, um, how we react. You can have a 52-year-old that's reacting and you're looking thinking, that's how my three-year-old acts, right? If they do not learn, if the brain is not, um, if we don't teach the brain to react in ways that are age developmentally appropriate, they will auto, we will automatically go back to what is um, like raw emotion, right, in the sympathetic part of the brain. So that's kind of part of what I want to um, talk about next time. Um, there'll be things, I don't know if it's in next week or the week after, but I, I want to look at like temper tantrums um, and how to, and what's actually happening biologically in the brain with that. It actually makes so much more sense when you understand it biologically. And all of a sudden you can deal with it a little differently because you can take the emotion of why are you acting that way out of it and actually understand what's happening in the brain, right? Um, we want kids to start to understand how to manage their own emotions, right? I, by, the, by the time I got down to Abby, that girl is as balanced as anybody could be because I finally figured it out, right? My other kids, bless their hearts, they got issues. They're all going to need counseling at some point. But I, we didn't have it quite figured out yet how to manage and help her, especially Abby with her. We helped to really learn how to manage and see and recognize emotionally what was going on inside of her and what she can do about it to maintain an uh, emotionally balanced state rather than have to respond in ways that are just out of control. So at 15, we don't have the door slamming, stomping, screaming, drama in our home. Thank goodness. You know, but we went through some of that with the boy versions and Amber for sure. I didn't have a clue how to handle it then. Right? So that's some of what I want to do next week and, and probably into the, the third week too. So um, I want to end with this. So I'm going to have you all just kind of put your stuff down, pens down or whatever. Just kind of close your eyes for a minute. All right. And I want you just for a second to kind of in your own mind, you know, think back. And I want you to try to see if you can identify a time, and you may or you may not, but a time in your life that you remember really was a, was a difficult moment for you. It's probably a memory that's, you know, kind of caught back in the brain a little bit. And maybe it was a, a sadness, a deep sadness, um, or a pain. Maybe it was a, a wound if you've been through the, you know, the child wounds, uh, part of the Freedom Ministries. Maybe it was an embarrassment that you experienced. And so just for a second, kind of remember what that was like. It was just didn't feel very good, right? And then I want you to, in the, in the midst of that memory, see if you can recall someone, and it really doesn't matter who, but someone, anyone who came alongside you in that moment and provided some level of comfort for you, like brought peace to that moment. So just see if you, if you recall that in connection to that moment. I'm just going to give you a minute to think about that. And then what I want you to do, some of you had someone that, that 
came and provided some comfort or some sort of soothing. But some of you didn't, probably, I'm guessing. And so the next thing that I want you to do, because it can feel kind of lonely there and, and sad, but I want you to imagine for just a second in that same circumstance, but now Jesus comes up to you. And maybe he embraces you. Maybe he wipes tears from your face, from your eyes. Maybe he holds your head close to his chest. And just be aware for a minute of the peace, the comfort, the soothing in that moment. And I'm going to pray for a minute, but then I want to make a comment afterwards. But let me just pray for a second. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you that you have designed us in all of our emotion, all of our life experience. You have designed us perfectly. And Lord, there is nothing that you cannot heal. There is no design or uh, circumstance that you cannot bring your soothing peaceful comfort to. Lord, our children are, they are our hearts. We, we love them. We, we want so much to bathe them in your love. And yet, Lord, we are human and we make mistakes. But in the midst of that, God, I pray that we would look to you. I love that scripture that says, I look to the hills from whence my help comes from. I think of that regularly because, God, you are always available in any circumstance in my life as I parent my kids, as I'm teaching and loving and, and, and working with them, and, and even my own healing moments. Lord, you're in the midst of those. You are our help. You are the answer. You are our peace. And I just thank you for the incredible, incredible ways that you have designed us. And Lord, we just want to honor you in every moment, whether we're mothering or we're being a wife at the moment or, or with a coworker sitting with somebody, whatever it is, Lord, we just want to honor you and glorify you with all of who we are, the uniqueness of who you created us to be. And we praise you and we thank you that each of our children, every last one of them is absolutely uniquely and amazingly, fearfully and wonderfully created. And we just pray that that you are that help from the hills in any and every moment that we need you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The thing I wanted to say very quickly, because I, I, I want to comment on this, um, that moment that I asked about if someone came to you that brought you comfort, I'm curious if, if people don't mind raising your hand. Did anybody not have someone that came to them that they didn't have that soothing? Yeah, that's normal. It's actually very, very normal. Um, it's, it's one of those things that in our brains we experience some hurts and some pains and some sadnesses that make a, like a mark, like a, a pathway the healing that I've been talking about, this neuroplasticity, if you will, that experience of bringing Jesus, and I, won't, I don't want people to have to share on this, but I'm, my hope and prayer would be for those of you who didn't have somebody that brought a soothing or a comfort, 
that when you brought Jesus, when you invited him into that moment and saw him or experienced him, that perhaps that brought that healing for you? And, and if it did, if you experienced that, and if you didn't and you want to talk about it afterwards, please come find me. <laughs> I'll be here for a little bit. Um, but that experience is the healing of the brain that we're talking about, and we, and we invite the Holy Spirit into that, right? So you can experience that moment in a little bit different way and not have to feel it if, if that memory is uh, triggered or tripped in some way. You don't have to go back to that painful or lonely place alone, you now have the Holy Spirit and, and you have Jesus with you in that moment, right? That's what I'm, that's the brain healing that God does. And it's just, it's incredible. I've seen so many people experience healing from past moments by doing something along this line.